Good morning. Good morning. Thanks to Luke and our worship team. Great to be with you all this morning. My name is Rob, and good to see you. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And by the way, I know I'm new to many of you, and I would love to have a chance to meet you. So just sometime today or a different day when I'm up here teaching after the service, if you just come down and say hello, I'd love to be able to put names with faces and, and just start this journey of getting to know you all as a congregation. That's really important to me. And while I'm talking about that, just to let you know, next week, Lloyd and I are going to be here together. We're going to be uh, team teaching next week. We're going to take a one-week break from our Mark series, and we're going to talk about a question that many of you have been asking us in the last few weeks. So what's next? And what will this next year look like as we begin to pray and seek God's direction and vision for our church moving forward. So that's going to be next week. Excited about that. I'm also going to have a chance to share a little bit more about my story and just how I got to this place and you'll get to meet my family. So I'm looking forward to that as well. So hopefully you'll be here next week. Well, we've been in uh, this journey through the gospel of Mark now for going on a year. Um, it'll be a year in a couple of months. Now we won't quite hit the year mark. We're going to be wrapping it up here uh, this month uh, toward the end of August. And we've gotten to this place where we've talked about time slows down when you get to the final 24, 48 hours of Christ's life. And we're certainly at a somber, heavy place in the text today. In fact, we're going to focus on the, the resurrection. If you look at the, the title of the message, it's just simply uh, the resurrection, excuse me, the crucifixion. All right, my brain is wanting to get ahead of myself here. The crucifixion. Now, it's a holy ground that we're going to be walking in together this morning. It's a, a, a sacred place in the scripture. In some ways, this is the lowest point in the gospel of Mark. In other ways, this is the highest point so far in the gospel of Mark, if you think about it from a theological perspective. And while you're turning there to Mark chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up in a minute in verse 21, let me just read to you the words of William Lane. William, a New Testament scholar that wrote a great commentary on the gospel of Mark, and this is what he said about Roman crucifixion. Death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human perversity, even in the eyes of the pagan world. Jewish historian Josephus described it as, quote, the most wretched of all ways of dying, end quote. And the shudder caused by the cross as an instrument of execution is still reflected in the English word we use today, excruciating. Excruciating, that's what comes from that idea, the crucifixion, the cross. Now, Roman, uh, the Roman uh, Empire used crucifixion as a form of intimidation. Any strong military power, they're only as powerful as their subject people believe that they are powerful. And so the Romans used this brutal form of execution and they would do it right by the streets, right by the main thoroughfares, right by the highways, so everybody could see this terrible death and watch these men die in agony on the cross. And they were always up there, uh, at least for hours, if not for days, as they slowly died. And then oftentimes they would just leave their corpses on the cross as a warning to other people. You don't lift a finger against Rome was the signal that they were sending. Now, Mark's account of the crucifixion begins actually with one of my favorite little details in the whole gospel. And so we're just going to jump right into the text. In verse 21 is, is one of my favorite details. They pressed into service. Now, they, the, the Roman army, the, the soldiers that are carrying out this crucifixion, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, parentheses, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, why do I love this little detail so much? First of all, remember, we've talked about this a few times. Mark almost never uses names 
right? That's part of Mark's style. He's short. He's quick to the point. He leaves out a lot of important names in the Bible. Almost the only names we get before this point besides Jesus are the 12 disciples. That's about it. Now we get to this, and we get not only the name of the man that carried the cross, but the name of his two sons, right? Why would Mark go out of his way to mention this? Well, think about this. The only reason it would matter to his original audience of who this man was and who his sons were is if they knew the family, right? So what most scholars believe, and I think the evidence leads us to this very clearly, is it was very likely that Alexander and Rufus, these two sons of Simon, were believers in the early church, that they were still alive, that they were around, that they were known by the audience of Mark. Now, we know that Mark most likely was writing to the church in Rome, so it was very likely, very possible that he's essentially saying, hey, this man that carried the cross, you know his sons. This is the father of Alexander and Rufus. There's no really other reason it would make sense for him to mention this. Isn't that a beautiful testimony to the beginning of this crucifixion story? The man that carried the cross either himself became a believer down the road, and more than likely, at least, his sons became believers. And so that's the legacy of Simon that we're left with. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our text, verse 22 all the way to verse 32, is I want to first just read it straight through. And I'll tell you why in a minute, why I want to read it straight through. Then we're going to come back and we're going to drill down and we're going to unpack some of the specific verses. Now, why do we want to read it straight through? Mark does something quite interesting in his crucifixion narrative. He focuses our attention on an aspect of the suffering of Jesus that we tend not to think about very much in our context. And I don't want to say much more than that, but when I read these 10 verses, I'm going to read them just straight through, I want you to kind of put on your Bible study hat and and notice what gets repeated, what themes or ideas get repeated, and what gets emphasized. What do you think Mark is deliberately drawing our attention to as we hear this narrative of the cross. And then I'll ask you what you think after I read these verses. So we're going to read starting in verse 22 all the way down through verse 32. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 29. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now, let me ask you, what did you pick up on? What, what theme is Mark trying to draw our attention to in terms of what aspect of Christ's suffering does he not want us to miss? Someone shout it out. Anything? Yeah, that's exactly right. She said the insults. It's the mocking and insults that gets repeated over and over and over again. So think about this for a minute before we drill down and I unpack that. When we think about the cross... First thing that comes to our mind, at least for me, is the excruciating physical agony. 
And if you've ever done any study on the cross, this was, you know, as Josephus says, this is the worst possible way to die. This was a long, slow, tortuous death. I mean, you know, the prayer that we all have that God wants my time to go, may I go quickly and painlessly. This, that's the opposite kind of death than what Jesus had. This was death by suffocation. Right? Literally hanging there on the cross, struggling to breathe, slowly over time, you're just asphyxiated and exhausted until you're worn out and your body just gives up. And this was an awful, terrible death, and yet Mark's emphasis, in fact, I would say most of the gospel writers, they draw our attention to the mocking, to the insults, to the suffering. And I, that should puzzle us a little bit. And we'll get into the, the why behind that in a minute. But before we get into the why, I want to talk about the what. I want to talk about the insults themselves. So just walk back through the scripture with me. Let's first look back. We won't put this verse on the screen, but let's first look at verse 24. In 24, you see the soldiers divided his garments. They took his garments. Well, what does that tell you? He was naked on the cross. That's how Rome executed people. They weren't clothed. They didn't have any loincloth. They were naked, bare, exposed on the cross. We'll come back to that theme in a little bit. Look at verse 26. They put a sign above his head. What does the sign say? The king of the Jews. Now that wasn't serious, right? No one except Jesus and his actual disciples truly believed that he really was the king of the Jews. So they put this sign above his head. In fact, we know from another gospel account, the religious leaders argue with with. Pontius Pilate, and they say, don't put the king of the Jews, put, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pontius Pilate says, what I've written, I've written, right? He was intentionally, you know, thumbing his nose or, you know, getting at the Jews here. This was, this was a mocking that was happening. The king of the Jews, bloody, dying on a cross. And then in verse 29, 30, 31, and 32, three different audiences start mocking Jesus. The, 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 those that are just passing by, you know, random strangers, so to speak, in verse 29. In 31, the chief priests and the scribes. In 32, the robbers, the, the insurgents that were being killed with him on his right and his left. So let's look at some of the phrases that are used in this abuse. Let's drill down a little bit, and then we'll talk about why Mark draws our attention to these things. Look at verse 29 again. Let's put that back on the screen. These are the, the, the passerbys. Those passing by were hurling abuse. Let's just pause and, and think about that phrase, talk about that phrase for a little bit. In the Greek, it's actually the phrase that they were blaspheming. Isn't that interesting? They were blaspheming. Now, there's a couple reasons I think that's interesting. One is blasphemy was the charge that Jesus was being crucified under, according to the Jews. The trial that they had, you know, with Caiaphas, the chief priest, Right? It was the blasphemy of Jesus. In fact, he said, listen, there's no need for more witnesses. You've heard him blaspheme. Now who's actually blaspheming? God is on the cross, and these people walking by are hurling insults. They're blaspheming the one who is on the cross. Now, the next little interesting phrase we get to is the idea of wagging their heads. Right? That, that's an interesting English uh, translation. We don't hear that much anymore, wagging their heads. It just means they're... They're just shaking their heads in disgust, right? It's just, ugh, just disgusted by this man, right? Now, the actual phrase wagging their heads has an interesting background to it. There was one particular psalm that we know was on Jesus' mind when he was on the cross. Anybody happen to know what psalm that was? We know it was on Jesus' mind because it begins with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Sound familiar? That's one of the things that Jesus said when he was on the cross. So this psalm, it was Psalm 22, Jesus was thinking about this psalm. He was probably reciting this psalm in his mind on the cross. He would have memorized this psalm as a young boy, right, when he was learning about the scriptures and he was learning Hebrew. I want to read to you a quote from Psalm 22. This is verse 7 and 8. See how familiar this sounds to the passage that we just read. This is from Psalm 22. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. That kind of just means they're making mouths at me, right? They wag the head. There it is again. Saying, quote, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So this idea of wagging the heads coming straight from Psalm 22. This was on Jesus' mind. He's seeing this psalm lived out right in front of him. And it's a messianic psalm that Jesus is fulfilling at this point in time. Now let's look at verse 30. Here's what they're saying. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So this is kind of the basic idea behind all the mocking. If you want to sort of summarize all the mocking, it's in this phrase. And the idea behind this is, look how weak you are, Jesus. You say you have all this power, you know. Where's all your power now? Look how impotent you are. Your death, Jesus, is proof positive that you have no power, that you are weak. And this is what they're accusing of. Now, for all of us who believe that Jesus was the Son of God, I mean, this, this just grates us, right? I mean, it's like, it's, it's like seeing your, 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 your dad, you know, growing up when you're a little kid, you know, your dad can do anything. He's got more muscles than anybody, and he can beat anybody in an arm wrestling match. It's like seeing your dad weak and sick and dying. Right? There's just a part of us that just cries out, no, no, it's wrong. And this is what's being hurled at Jesus. Now we get to verse 31, and we're going to see the, the mocking is now being taken up by the chief priests and the scribes. Now they're saying some interesting things. Just look at that verse again, verse 31. I want to key in uh, on, on what he actually says. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He saved others, but can't save himself. Break this down with me for a minute. He saved others. What has that got to be a reference to? The healing, the healing ministry of Jesus. So even when he's on the cross dying, they can't deny that he healed. They can't deny that he did all these things. He saved others. We're not disputing that he saved others. But the real proof of his power is, can he save himself? You see, here's what's going on in their mind. It's inconceivable to them that someone who had power to save themselves would not actually save themselves. So there's a lot of irony in this phrase. He saved others but can't save himself. What's the irony? The irony is Jesus has to choose. Will he save himself? Or is he gonna theologically save everyone else? You see, is he gonna save others or is he gonna save himself? Now, where is Jesus channeling his power at this point in time? He's exercising his power to stay on the cross. That's the most powerful decision that Jesus is making in this moment. So remember, Jesus has access to the full power of the deity at his disposal, right? He's the second person of the Trinity. So I want you just to imagine, follow this little silly analogy. What if you were somehow you know, pinned down by, by a, 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 ant, a group of ants, and, and they were just biting at you, and, and they were literally killing you with a million ant bites, right? Now, you as a fully grown adult or any human being, you, you have perfect power just to, to get up, 
brush those ants off your body and be on your way. No problem. Jesus could have done that. How much more power would it take for you to stay on the ground as you slowly lose your life from a million ant bites? Jesus is channeling his power and he's exercising his power not to save his own skin, but to stay on the cross. He's holding it back so that he can save others. And then we get to verse 32, which is the next thing that these priests and scribes are going to say. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross. And here's why they're, they're sort of daring him, if you will. So that we may see and believe. Jesus, you've wanted us to believe in you. Here's your chance. Do one more miracle, they're saying. Just come down from the cross right in front of us. We'll believe. We'll believe. Now, here's what's interesting about that when you actually really think about it. They're saying, Jesus, if you do a trick, if you show us your power, you'll win your audience. You'll win your followers. Jesus never used his power to highlight his own strength. He never did tricks for people. Remember Herod? Herod asked the same thing. Hey, do a miracle for me. Let me see your power. Jesus refused. He only and always used his power to serve other people. That's how Jesus used his power. All of his miracles were all about helping and serving other people, not himself. And now his power to stay on that cross is all about helping and serving other people, not himself. And by the way, would they have believed in him if he'd come down from the cross? Well, let's put it this way. Two days later, he's going to do a much greater miracle than coming down from the cross. He's going to come out of a grave. And this same group didn't believe even then. They weren't going to believe. They weren't going to believe. Then the second half of this verse 32, the insults are now taken up by those on the cross with him. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So as if all this wasn't enough, right? You've got those passing by. You've got the chief priest. Now you have the the insurgents, and and by the way, the word robber in the translation is probably better translated insurgents. These were likely followers of Barabbas, right, who had led an insurgency. So these were bandits. These were insurgents against the power of Rome. Jesus was taking Barabbas' place in the center, and these two men were on his right and his left. Now, what Mark is showing you here is from the top of the society, which was the chief priests and the scribes, all the way down to the lowest of society, these two men being crucified with Jesus, everybody's mocking him. Everybody's insulting him. And of course, we know from Luke's account that one of these two men being crucified by Jesus is going to change his tune before the whole ordeal is done. And he's going to actually say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, he's going to actually start to believe. I think he probably starts to believe through the way that Jesus is handling this whole situation on the cross with all the abuse and all the mocking come at him. Uh, He has so much dignity despite the shame of the cross. Now, the physical pain that Jesus is in speaks for itself, I hope. It was agony. And yet Mark and other gospel writers draw our attention not to the physical pain. They don't even mention that hardly. They draw our attention to the mockery, to the shame, to the insults. Why? That's the question you should be asking. That's the question I want you to puzzle around with me. Why? 
There's probably a lot of good answers. I've got two that I've been thinking about that I want to just expound with you a little bit. One is a cultural reason, and one is a theological reason. I'll talk about the cultural reason first, then I'll talk about the theology. When we get into the theology, this is going to be our jumping place to begin to apply this whole passage to us. You know, what does this have to do with us, Jesus on the cross here? Let's start first with the cultural reason. The ancient Near East was an honor-shame culture. And still to this day, the Middle East is, in, in much of the, the world, the Far East and other places in this world, are, are what we would consult, call an honor-shame culture. Sometimes it's just called a shame culture. Now contrast that with most of Western culture. Most of Western culture is what sociologists would call a guilt culture. Now, individualistic societies, which is like the society that we live in, the emphasis on personal responsibility and personal guilt. Collective societies, such as true in the Middle East and certainly for sure true in the ancient Near East when, where, where Jesus would have been here in this culture, was a collective shame-honor society, shame-honor culture. So what this means is the highest good in that culture is dignity and reputation, the lowest low is shame and disgrace. So this is why even to this day, every now and then if you're reading you know, the news, you'll hear about something that just blows our mind that there was some crime that was committed in, in, in a in different culture and then it was that retribution was for someone else to kill that person as an honor killing or someone else to do something terrible as a way to sort of avenge the honor of the family or, or take revenge against this person and shame one family to raise the honor of the other family back up. We don't understand this oftentimes with our Western filter, our Western mindset, because we don't live in an honor-shame culture. To the culture that Mark was writing to, his emphasis on the indignity and the shame of the cross would have made perfect sense to that audience. There would have been no explanation needed. In fact, you know, it simply would have said, that's the greatest form of suffering. To be stripped bare, to be mocked and insulted, to, to have your dignity taken from you, and to be just verbally abused for hours on end in front of your followers, in front of your own mother. We know Mary was there. In front of your enemies, by your enemies, and just random strangers passing by. By the way, this is part of the intimidation of the Roman strategy here. They understood the culture, the shame that was laid on these men on the cross was, to that culture, the greatest form of suffering. Now, here's one aspect of the shame-honor culture that transcends all culture boundaries. The greatest expression of shame in all cultures is nakedness. Even in our culture today, right? The, the shame of being exposed and so we see, as we've already looked at, in back in verse 24, the nakedness of Jesus as they've stripped him of his clothes and they're literally, you know, they're, they're gambling. You know, they're dividing up his clothes. You know, his outer garment, his inner garment. Now, just think about this for a minute. In our paintings of crucifixion, in our statues of crucifixion, in the, you know, the, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, all their iconography, Jesus is always covered. 
He's always wearing, I mean, almost always, he's almost always wearing some kind of loincloth or some kind of covering. In our movies, right, The Passion of the Christ, any movie that I've ever seen of Jesus, he's covered. And I'm not suggesting it's inappropriate in those contexts to cover Jesus. But why do we feel the need to, even in our society today, in, in 21st century Western society? Because of the shame of nakedness. It's still shameful to be exposed. And so we knowingly misrepresent the historicity of the moment in order to cover the shame of our Savior. You see, we just do this instinctively. Why is nakedness such a universal expression of shame? Never thought about that. Well, this gets into our theological reason. This gets into the theology behind why Mark and other gospel writers focus on the shame. They focus on the mockery and the insults. And I'd literally like you to, to keep your place in Mark 15 and turn backward in your Bible all the way to the beginning, all the way to Genesis. We're not going to put these verses on the screen. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn there to Genesis chapter 2. We're actually going to be in the very last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Now let me set the context. I'm just going to read a few verses here in Genesis the last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis is the final description of the good and perfect creation before sin entered the world. Okay, so Genesis 2 verse 25 is the last word on the way things were meant to be in the creation. Let's pick it up in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, now think about that for a minute. The idea here is there's nothing inherently shameful about the exposed human body. In the way that God designed us, the way that God designed the creation, before sin entered the world, the man and woman were naked and unashamed. You see, there's no reason to be ashamed of our bodies prior to the fall. Now, look down at verse 6 of chapter 3 and let's see what happens. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, isn't this interesting? What's the very first instinct human beings have once they sin? Cover. Cover. Where do they feel shame? They feel shame in their body. They've got to cover themselves. And so they literally grab the, the first thing that would have been available, the, the leaves of a fig tree, and, and, and they're just grabbing them and putting them over themselves. Who's there? It's just the man and his wife and their creator. The instinct is to cover. The instinct is to hide. The instinct is shame now. Now, look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves, fascinating, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked. The shame. So I hid myself. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Guys, there's only one way in the garden they could sin. And as soon as they felt shame, it was obvious. 
what had happened. Who told you you were naked? You must have eaten from the tree. Of course, God knew that they ate from the tree. So he goes on the rest of chapter 3 to describe the creation-altering implications of their sin. Not only will they feel shame, but all these other things are now going to be true. Like their lives are going to get much more difficult. Then in verse 21, we see an act of grace. And last verse in Genesis, I want you to look at Genesis 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What is this? The first moment in creation that blood is spilt. Why is blood spilt? To cover the shame of human sin, you see. Literally, directly, God takes an animal, sacrifices the animal, takes the skin of the animal, covers it over mankind to cover their shame. You see what's going on here. This first animal sacrifice sets the tone for the whole rest of the Old Testament. How is it that man's sin can be covered? Their shame can be covered only through the shedding of blood. It's not until Jesus is on the cross and Mark chapter 15 that that system of animal sacrifice can be closed because he is the one and final sacrifice whose blood, whose death, covers the shame of mankind's sin, anyone who comes up underneath it. Like, this is the theology that's going on here. Now, here's the big theological idea that I want you to grab onto, and then we're going to begin to apply it to us. That very first animal sacrifice, right, points directly to the moment in time when Jesus, as God incarnated with blood, with bone, with flesh, is going to shed his blood in order to cover the sin. So what are we getting from that? We're getting this big idea. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only bore the guilt of human sin, but he bore the shame of human sin. It wasn't just the guilt that he was covering. Yes, that's true. Yes, you're now innocent because of the righteousness of Christ, but your shame is also covered too. Your spiritual nakedness, the rawness that you feel of being exposed is covered because Jesus bore your shame, you see. All the shame was thrown at him and he bore it. He covered you. Now, this is a very important idea because I want you to think about the way that the language shifts from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I'm just going to give you one example. In the Old Testament, start paying attention to the way that shame language is used associated with sin. Shame language associated with sin. More in the scripture than guilt language. Isn't this interesting? Right? Because it was a shame-based culture. Here's one example. Isaiah 64, 6. I'll read it. You don't need to turn there. This is one that many of you are familiar with. Isaiah writes this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. That's a guilt term, guys. I mean, I'm sorry, it's a shame term, not a guilt term. Unclean, I'm unclean. Who was unclean? Lepers were unclean, right? You touched something dead, sacrifice. Shame associated with that. You're unclean. Now he goes on. This is even more. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Filthy rags. Now, you do a little study on that term. If you know any background on that term, you realize that filthy rags is very closely associated with the shame of the naked body. So what's happening in the Old Testament? Our condition in sin is being described using shame language. Let's look at how that shifts in the New Testament. There's all kinds of scriptures that I could quote, but how are we described as 
children of God, as saints, as the bride of Christ. Honor language, you see. You see how it just shifted. The shame language in our old state under sin has now been replaced with the honor language of our state in Christ. And the imagery of someone who has come up under the blood of Jesus, they're now described as clothed with the righteousness of Christ. No longer clothed clothed with the skin of dead animals. We're now clothed with the white robe, with the righteousness of Christ that is ours. You see, the language has shifted from shame to honor. How did that happen? Because the one bore the shame not just our guilt. Okay, so what? So what? Let's get into this application. When you start to see that Jesus died for you, not only for your guilt, but also for the shame associated with that guilt, you can then begin to understand all that Jesus did for you on the cross a bit more fully. And and here's where I'm going with this. I think for most of us in the room, I know this has been true for me for most of my life, no matter how much we study the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins, the doctrine of the atonement, it kind of exists out here in a sanitized theological laboratory, okay? And what we need to do is we need to pull the doctrine of forgiveness of sins out of that clean, sanitized environment, and we need to put it into the messiness of our own lives, of our addictions, of our struggles, of our anger, of our jealousies of our greed of our consumerism we've got to apply this to where our shame actually exists do you see what i mean by this shame is not only the result of sin but shame drives all kinds of sin so for most of us in this room shame or at least this sense of inadequacy this nakedness that we cover uh, carry around in us it's it's a subtle fuel It drives isolation, it drives anger, it drives ambition, greed, pride, lust, all kinds of destructive things. So it's a vicious cycle. We feel shame because of our sin. We feel exposed and naked. And that shame then begins to drive out of us all kinds of other sin. Now, what can break the cycle? You've got to take the doctrine of the forgiveness of sin and apply it to your areas of deepest shame. The doctrine... The theology, so to speak, needs to invade the dark spaces where you and I actually live. What are those dark spaces? Well, anything in your life that you want to cover up and hide, right? Anything that that you hope no one finds out, that you hope no one sees, that, that that you wish weren't true about you, those are areas of shame. Those are areas of nakedness. You're trying to cover it up with fig leaves. Now, let me just run through some things that that I know is here in the room, okay? Some specific areas of shame that I know is here in the room. And, you know, some of you, your heart starts beating just thinking about this because it's real. How do I know that this is in the room? Well, because it's in my own heart, for one. And, And from time spent pastoring people, Here are the things that I know is in the room. Many of you carry deep shame around something that you've done that you believe has caused you to be tainted somehow and unworthy of forgiveness. Some of you carry deep shame around something you didn't even do was done to you. Some of you right now are carrying the shame of of this secret ongoing sin that's out of control in your life and you're just not sure what to do about it. You're hiding. You're covering it with fig leaves. But you're, you're afraid. You're afraid. 
Some of you feel shame less around things you've done and more around some ideal that you don't measure up to, right? You haven't been the father or the mother that you should have been or that you should be. You haven't been as successful as you wish you were in any kind of way. Some of you have deep shame literally about your body, literally about your appearance. You're holding yourself up to some standard that you don't meet. You don't stack up well against some other people in any area of our lives. Some of you, your marriage has been so much different and so much harder than you thought it would be, and there's shame attached with that. I know for a fact there's a lot of men in this room that feel deep shame that they're not the men of God that God has called them to be, that they're, they just feel like their growth is stunted, that they're not fully living out what God would call them to do. I know there's shame there. I know for many women in the room, there's a deep shame of not feeling worthy of love and delight and being pursued, and we have all this shame that comes out of us. Nearly all of us can identify with this statement. If they really knew what was down in here, apart from all the clothing, apart from all the things that I used to cover up, if they really knew, I'd be rejected. If I was exposed, I wouldn't be worthy. Now, just look right at me for a minute. Jesus was naked. Jesus was exposed. Jesus bore the shame. Jesus covered it. He bought honor for you. He traded in his honor for shame so that you could trade in your shame for honor. He did that. So what do we do with that? Well, we receive it. You can't earn it. We receive it. And so this morning, what we want to do as we begin to wrap up this worship service is we want to give you an opportunity again to receive it. And we're going to do that this morning through the sharing of the Lord's Supper. And so as I'm talking and continuing just to sort of explain why we're going to do this, I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and, and start serving, to start passing. The band will come out as well, and they're going to play a little bit of music. But but stay with me as I unpack why we're going to do the Lord's Supper and how it's related to this idea of Jesus bearing our shame, Jesus covering our shame. Think back to the Last Supper, right, which would have happened just the night before the events that we're reading about today, the events on the cross. Jesus was with his disciples and he had one last opportunity before all the chaos began to teach them. Now, he could have just told them about the doctrine of substitution and the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. But instead, he took a loaf of bread. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat. And he took a cup and he said, this cup is the cup of my blood spilled for you. Drink. And even as I'm describing this, I'm going to go ahead and ask the ushers to go ahead and start serving the elements, if you would. Now, one of the reasons that I think Jesus gave his followers back then and still today, because here we are in 2017, still doing the same thing. One of the reasons he gave us the Lord's Supper is because he knew that theology, doctrine, that exists only in the theological classroom and not drug out into something tangible, something that we can apply to our own lives, something that, that deals with our own shame that we're dealing with and our own muck, it doesn't have the same power. So he gave them and he gave us something that we could feel, 
something that we could taste, you see. Now, we don't believe at Fellowship Bible Church that what you're holding in your hands right now, that, that little piece of bread and that little juice, we don't believe that that's the literal body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe that that's how this works. Here's what we believe about what you're holding. We believe that it is a tangible symbol that points to the reality that Jesus' real body and real blood was shed for you. Why was it shed? To bear your shame. To bear your shame. So you literally, as you're receiving this right now, all of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, you are holding in your hands a tangible symbol that you can feel, you can touch, and you can taste that your shame is gone, that your shame has been covered by the blood of Jesus, by the body of Jesus. So I want to talk for just a minute to those of you in the room who've actually never put your faith in Christ. And I know there has to be some. In several hundred people, there has to be some that have never. And let me just say this. You might have done the Christian thing for a long time, but you never actually realized, oh, my shame can be gone. Like that was the purpose of this death was to cover my nakedness, my exposure of all of my sin. And, and maybe God has just given you the faith this morning just to receive that. Then perhaps for the first time in your life this morning, by receiving the bread and by receiving the cup, you simply reflect in your heart that you believe and that you receive this gift. That's all it is. And that's your conversion. It's putting your faith that Jesus did this, not just theologically for everybody. He did it that, but he also did it particularly for you. And you're holding in your hands right now the tangible symbol of that for you. Your little piece of that body symbolically. Your little piece of that blood symbolically. Now, for all of us, all of us who have put our faith in Christ, let me just say this. For Adam and Eve to be covered, they had to come out of the bushes. They had to come out of hiding. They had to expose themselves before their creator so that then they could receive the covering. And so this morning, this is our opportunity just to come before God, the privacy of your own mind and heart, and say, God, would you deal with my nakedness, my shame, the conviction that is on my soul right now for not being the man or woman that you've called me to be. You bore that through the death and the sacrifice of your son. And so I receive. I receive. So I would like for you to take the bread and I would like for you to take the cup and I would like for you to receive that together this morning. Now, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll walk us through this as we receive together. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that he was writing this letter to. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And let's go ahead together and eat the bread together. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And go ahead and drink now together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and that includes on this day, 2,000 years later, 
As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, why do we proclaim the Lord's death and not just the resurrection? We do that too, of course, but why do we proclaim the Lord's death? Because it's his death that covers our shame. It covers it. And so in Hebrews 12, verse 2, the writer says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, listen to this, scorning its shame. Why did he scorn the shame? Why did he despise the shame? Why did he bear the shame? For the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? The church, his bride, you and me. With that, we're going to celebrate together and we're going to sing. Because our shame has been covered by the blood of Jesus, we can now go white, as the song as we've been saying, covered with the white robe of Jesus' righteousness. And so you can receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance to you and grant you peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.